Well, let me ask you a question tonight. Um, how many, how, how would you guys define religion? Religion. Did you ever hear anybody say, oh, he got religion? I mean, usually that's because there was a change, right, in, their, in the way they behave or talk or their attitude or something, right? Or, I mean, there's times where you think about religion and, you know, anytime I always have thought of religion, I don't really think of Christianity. Of course, it's a religion, but what's the old saying we say? Well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. So, and, and if you really live it like that, it doesn't feel like a religion per se, because a religion seems to be something where you're, you're trying to follow rules and you're trying to make your way to God and you're trying to be right and do right and act right. And, and there is a difference between that and, and in, in a sense, what Christianity offers, which is a relationship with God, a, a, a full one-on-one relationship. Something, you know, we talk about that one of the big differences between Christianity and every other religion is the fact that Christianity is the only religion where God comes to man. Not only does he come to man, but even though men, we're the ones who separated ourselves from him, then he makes the initiative and, and takes the first step in, in paving the way and making it possible for us to have a relationship with him again. Every other religion, it's man clawing and working his way toward God and trying to perfect himself and be good enough or... In the cases of some Eastern religions, uh, join the Godhead or, or become nothing or something like that. But it's always man trying to better himself to get to God rather than God coming to man and, and providing the actual way that man can come to God. Totally different thing. But here's an interesting thing. You may never have thought of it this way, but um, not all religion is acceptable to God. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not even talking here about non-Christian religion. I'm talking about even Christian. Do you ever think about that? Sounds kind of judgmental, doesn't it? Self-righteous almost. And I'm not talking about even a church. I'm not talking about Assembly of God or Baptist or Methodist or Catholics or Orthodox or Presbyterian or Lutheran or any of the other. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this book of James is so straightforward. I wonder what he was like, you know, because the way he writes, I, I envision like kind of how Peter would be, you know, because Peter in the, in the Gospels is, is, he's kind of a firebrand and speaks his mind. And we don't actually see much of what James was like. But um, this James would have been James, the brother of Jesus. The, the disciple James was martyred really fast, really soon after the crucifixion. So we, we don't really know much about him either other than that. But, but the brother of Jesus, all we really know is from this book. And it sounds like he didn't mess around. He just told it how it was. And sometimes the way he talks, it seems very, very straightforward. And the thing is about this is you could spend your whole life being religious and following the rules and actually miss out on knowing Jesus. It really is about a relationship. I've told this story probably before, but I met this man on the street one day. I, was, I, was, I had gotten some work done on my Jeep, and it was going to take way longer than I thought, so I was kind of bored, and I was looking around for a bookstore or something. If I had a cell phone, I probably wouldn't have been doing that. I probably just sat there and entertained myself, but this was before that. And I was walking down the street. I saw this guy, and I thought, he was walking down the street too, and I thought, I'll just go talk to him, you know, and and I'm so naive sometimes like that, as if people want to just talk to a stranger. So I, I caught up to him, and I said, hey, how you doing? And he just kind of grumped at me, and I said, bad day, and grumped again. And so I just kept, you know, trying to get conversation going, and he kept trying to tell me to leave him alone, but I wasn't, I wasn't having it. And we get to the edge of this corner, and he says, I think I'm just going to step right into traffic. I've told you the story, right? Oh. And he was an older man, and... Um, I was standing on this side. We're standing right on the curb like this. And he goes, I think I'm just going to, he's right here. And he goes, I'm going to just step into this traffic. You know, and traffic's whizzing by. I'm like, really? Why would you do that? 
He goes, well, I've got nothing to live for. And then I said, really? Nothing at all? You know, now we're talking. Now that he's, you know, got, put the big shock thing out there. And uh, he goes, yeah, look at this. And he pulls up his, he had a, like a real loose fitting shirt and he had like a, one, a bag on him and stuff. And he's like, can't even, can't even be on my own, you know, and all this. <laughs> like, well, that's, that's bad. He goes, and don't have any friends, and nobody, none of my kids will talk to me, and y'all, now we're talking. That's not what I was looking for, but I'm, I'm good with that. So we're talking, and um, I said, really, not even your kids? I said, well, what about church? Do you have a church? He goes, I went to church for 60 years. I said, 60 years? Really? Wow. 60 years. I said, so you must have a relationship with Jesus. He goes, I don't think I ever met him there. <laughs> I thought he was kidding. I really did. I mean, this is San Diego. I thought he was doing a Jesus Jesus joke there. And I said, really? You never met Jesus at church? He goes, no, I did all, I did all this stuff. I was a deacon. I was, took the offering. I taught Sunday school. I don't think I ever met him. <laughs> I, I, I looked at him, you know, and, and I, he wasn't joking. And I, I was looking at him just kind of just really confused. I said, how do, you, how do you go to church 60 years and not meet Jesus? And he said this. He said this. He goes, I don't think he was there. I said, really? I said, really? I said, where do you think he was? I was just kind of, I was just confused. You know, I was grasping for straws at, at this conversation. I said, where do you think he was? He goes, well, I don't think he was part of all that. He goes, those people weren't nice, and they weren't like him. And So here's the thing. I said, you know what it seems like to me? It seems like you actually do know what he's like. And who he is, because you're measuring all that and everything you experience by something. Sounds to me like that's Jesus. And you're saying you don't know him? Really? Because it sounds to me like you at least know what he should be like. And I think he could come into your life right now and change your whole attitude. And when he right away, oh, it's not that easy. You young people, you think you got the answers to everything. And I mean, he was really, really an angry dude, you know. And then just then the light turned and he just booked off. I was trying to keep up with him. I'm like, man, he can move fast for an old guy. And, and uh, you know, we got to the other end and he's just like, would you please leave me alone? I said, I guess so. But I walked away from there kind of with my head spinning. How do you go through all that, go through the motions and not meet Jesus? It's interesting because clearly he knew what Jesus should be like. And I think what we're going to look at tonight might have a little insight into that. I don't know for sure. But, you know, the thing is, religion can leave you very, very, very dry and very hurt. If your idea about what church is or what Christ is or Christianity or this relationship is just about doing things and going through the motions, you are going to be disappointed. And I don't know what happened to that guy. I mean, I, I didn't get him to see the light or get happy or solve any problems that day. But I think a lot of times we think of religion and we, we think of it in terms that aren't, aren't necessarily what the Bible talks about. And this passage of scripture we're going to look at, I think is familiar to you, but hopefully we'll look at it a little different than what you've looked at before. This is James 1, 26 to 27. If you claim to be religious, there's that word, but don't control your tongue, You are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. He gives, right in those those two verses right there, James gives us three definitions of religion, which I bet none of you thought of, at least yet tonight. I bet as you read them, you're going to say, well, yeah, of course that's religion. I get it. I see where he's going with that. But my point is that typically if we were to ask you what's religion, those aren't the three things you might necessarily mention. Maybe the last one, kind of, but, 
but not necessarily in that order. When he starts off there and he says, if you claim to be religious, um, that's, that is the New Living Translation. In the, in the NIV, it says, if you imagine, no, it doesn't say imagine, it says thinks. And the word actually in Greek is the word imagine. How many of us imagine we're pretty good people? Do you ever imagine that? I mean, really? I know, I know most of you, you are pretty good people. But here's the danger with that as humans. It's so easy to be deluded, isn't it? And deceived. Have any of you talked to anybody who's, who's actually got a delusion, like a, like a mental illness? And one of my students, I got a call from, uh, this is years, years ago, but um, these, these students had, had graduated. I was here already as the executive pastor at this church, and I got a call from a former student, and he, he told me that um, one of his friends, he says, he's here and he's talking. He's, I think he's lost his mind. And I said, what do you mean? I thought he was kidding, you know. He goes, no, I think he really has. He snapped. He's, he thinks that the tribulation has happened and anybody who doesn't believe him, they're part of it. And he's trying to hide from the mark of the beast. And he's really, I think he's lost his mind. He's completely deluded. So I drove over there and we, we got him uh, admitted into, uh, over at uh, Truman in the health, mental health. And um, the whole time we're talking to him, I, I, I was sitting there talking to him. And it, it, was, it was so bizarre because he really, really believed it. And I'm not saying any of us are quite like that, but I think we're all on that spectrum to some degree where we, we, it's hard to really be honest with ourselves sometimes, isn't it? And to really look in and know for sure, because I mean, that's by definition, a delusion is something you can't really see and you, you don't know for sure inside. And the sad thing is we, we deceive ourselves all the time about so many things, don't we? I don't know why I thought of this, but it, it kind of relates. But I was thinking about how Nicole and I, when we got on the plane to go on our honeymoon, um, I had a cup of coffee, and I was holding it, and she said, careful not to spill that. And I thought, you don't even know me. Do you know how many cups of coffee I drank? I've never spilled. As I was saying it, I spilled the coffee on my leg, <laughs> and I thought, I was kind of deluded. You know, you, you think these things about yourself, and, and the truth is you don't always know all of it and the truth. And the thing is that self-deception, you can think and claim to be religious, but, but in truth, it may not be as good and you may not be as good as you think. What's interesting too, this word religion he uses there, I, I was wondering when I read that, I thought, I wonder if that is the same, has the same type of meaning it has today as it did in the first century, and it does. I mean, they had religions. Of course they did. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought it might be different, but it's, it's the same thing. And as I looked it up, what it meant to be religious in the first century, kind of, it was comical because was, it, was, it was talking about um, attendance at your church, whatever it was, synagogue or attendance at your, you know, your temple or whatever, how many times you attended, how much you gave, whether or not you fasted, if you dressed and looked the part that your religion required. Does that all sound familiar? <laughs> That's what we do too, right? We put all these rules to what it means to be religious. And if I'm doing all those things, I must be doing pretty good. If I'm singing and praying and giving and testifying and going through the motions of Christianity. But here comes down the question is, is it all in your head or is it just a habit or does it really get into your heart? When I was in Bible college, I used to have this, I had one of the professors we had, he was from South Africa. He had that really cool accent, kind of like, kind of like Petro does, but, but imagine a big booming voice with her accent. And um, he would say, uh, theology, this is how he would word it. He would say, theology that's not pectoral is not worth anything. And what he meant is if it's not in your heart, not real, it doesn't matter. Then he would say this, this was a little disturbing. He'd say, you know how, who has perfect theology? The devil. 
He goes, he knows the truth. He just doesn't believe it or he doesn't obey it and he rejects it, but he knows what it is. The thing is, it's not about knowing all the answers and reading all the books and having, you know, doing all the right things. The thing is, has it changed your life and changed who you are? The thing is, our religion, even good conservative evangelical Pentecostal, you can call yourself whatever you want, but in the end, is it acceptable to God? And he gives us these three, these three descriptions about what acceptable religion is. He says, conversation, compassion, and character. The three C's right there. I, I was thinking about this. It's important that you're here at church tonight. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here on Sunday. Of course, that matters. But just going into the church itself doesn't mean you're, you're doing the right thing because you know how it is. You yourself can go and not necessarily live it out. And anybody else can as well. You just, you know, you can just, going in the building's good, but that's just the beginning. It's, it's almost more important what you do on Monday than it is on Sunday, isn't it? If you think about it. I heard somebody once say, it was a preacher, he said, he goes, I don't care how loud you shout and how high you jump. I just care how straight you walk when you hit the ground. <laughs> Sunday matters, but Monday matters more. Monday morning faith as opposed to Sunday morning religion. I'll take Monday morning faith every, any day over Sunday morning religion. <laughs> Truth is, no, no amount of outward religiosity can make up for a corrupt heart. There's just no amount. You can't do it. The fact is, uh, these things that James mentions, we'll start here with your conversation, illustrates really who you are. And he says there, he says, if anyone, and this is the NIV here, if anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Now, I, I don't know if any of you have had a problem with that in your life, uh, controlling your tongue. Anybody? You want to be honest? Oh, wow. Some hands shot up quick. I got in trouble more for my mouth than anything in my whole life. Does anybody else? And I mentioned this before in a sermon. I'm not going to go in, into a bunch of detail. Because my, my mom said, I can't believe I made you eat soap when you were a kid. I can't believe you tell people that. They think I'm horrible. Does anybody else have to eat soap? Okay. And here's the thing about that. I look back at that, and I, I remember being amused by taunting my sister or other people. I mean, seriously. And I, you think about that, and, and he literally says... If you cannot control your tongue, then your religion is useless and you are deceived, deceived. Now, you, you may already know this, but, but that term he uses there for controlling his tongue, it's actually, a, he actually uses the term, it's, it's control from, but it's not, it's not control like you might think you're going to control like a remote control plane. It's control like you control a horse with a bridle. That's the terminology. So you may have heard that terminology, unbridled tongue. That literally is where that comes from, is that verse. Because that's what it's talking about. Anybody grow up with horses or been around horses much? A few hands? My dad was raised with horses. He was raised, this is how, well, anyway, he was raised, they worked horses. They had horses, a working ranch, that's what they did. He actually rode a horse to school until they paved the road to school. <laughs> Isn't that weird to think it wasn't that long ago that people were doing that kind of thing? So when I was growing up, I mean, of course, they didn't have horses anymore. We didn't have horses, but we'd go horseback riding a lot. And I was always amazed at how good he could control any horse. So for instance, if we would go as a family, you know, all four of us, because my younger sister was too little, but if we'd all four go and one of us would get a horse that was a little hard to ride, he would just switch to that and he, it would just, he could control, he, he was good. It, I mean, he really was, he, he could communicate with them and they would do whatever he wanted and he would, you know, I would try to do what he said to do and the way he did it, but it, he was good at it. There's a difference. But it's the same thing with our tongue. And you could even think of it keeping a tight rein on your tongue. 
Have you ever known people who just talk too much? <laughs> Some people do. They just talk too much. And I'm not talking about, like, I'm not talking about talkative people. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is, you know, the people who have too many opinions and share them too quick. None of you. I know it's none of you. You're thinking of somebody else, and that's fine. But because um, they have an answer for everything, and they're quick to give it, right? Or they have that gift of the clever put-down. Do you know anybody like that that just sharp-tongued? And they're really quick-witted, and they can just humiliate people over and over. I remember years when I started in youth ministry, that was kind of a, a way to handle difficult kids in the youth group. Have you ever heard that, seen that done? I remember one time, though, I, was, I, I had done that to a student, and I, I saw in his eyes that I humiliated him in front of everybody. And something, something I even now I'm feeling choked up about it, because I saw a kid who... He didn't need me to humiliate him and belittle him. He needed me to have a relationship with him. And, and that's what I did. I mean, I, I went to him afterward and apologized. And I apologized to him in front of his friends. And um, he ended up becoming a great, a great leader in that group. But I don't think that would have happened if I would have just left him wounded and humiliated. But, man, it felt good in the moment because he was kind of heckling and being a jerk. And it felt good to put him in his place. And then I saw that look in his eye. Man. I, I heard about this uh, instructor once. He said, or he was a team leader in this team, and he told the team something, and he said, and, and feel free to have no opinion about that. And he moved on. I remember everybody's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> I heard somebody else say once, opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one. And you, you really should only share your opinion if it's asked for. You know what you can do, though? This is a good technique. You can say, hey, do you want to know what I think? And sometimes they'll say, not really. And you should just keep it to yourself. <laughs> let me, let me, I, I came across this list of an unbridled tongue, and, and I wasn't going to share the whole thing, but I, you know what I think I am? Vulgarity, obscenity, indecent language, dirty jokes, off-color stories, pornographic language, racial or ethnic insults, humor meant to insult or put someone down, angry outbursts, harsh words, mean-spirited comments, gossip, Rumors, false accusations, imputing bad motives, public criticism of your spouse or children, yelling or screaming threats, intimidating comments, endless criticism, quick-cutting comments, cheap shots, talking too much, talking without listening, condemning others, exaggerating the faults of others, excusing kind words by saying, I was only joking. Hey, everybody, have you heard, talked to anybody? And they said, not to be mean, but you know what that means. I'm going to be mean, and you're supposed to excuse it. Or they'll say something, and they'll say, I'm just saying. Like, what does that mean? Like, that's okay then. I'm, I'm exonerated from whatever I just said that was rude and mean because I said just saying. Why does this matter so much? Here, just, I, let's look at a couple of these verses. The tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. I laughed out loud when I read that verse. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I've read that verse before, but in context of this, it made me laugh out loud. The first part, of course the tongue can bring death or life, and you know that. You know that. You, you all have said something to somebody that brought life right? And you saw it happen. You saw it in their eyes. You saw it in their smile. You saw it in their countenance. You saw it in the way they act afterward, whether it was a child of yours or a coworker or a friend or someone, maybe a subordinate. And you've also probably done the other thing. You've probably also brought death by something you said. That's what I saw in that kid's eyes that day. He was sitting right over there. That's why I keep pointing there. Because in my memory, that's what I see. And I see his eyes and I saw the death that I brought because of my mouth. <laughs> this last part just makes me laugh. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. Oh, isn't that the truth? Oh, my goodness. Look at this. Uh, their talk is foul. This is the book of Romans, and Paul is talking about uh, evil people in the church. 
He says, their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. That is very, very figurative language, isn't it? Not to be gross or anything, but I will never forget. I, I don't think I'd seen death really until I was on a ranger camp out actually at Camp Pendleton. And we were hiking somewhere, and uh, we could smell this before we even got close. But we're boys, right? So we had to find out what smelled so bad, right? We get up there, and a sheep had died. It was a huge sheep, and it was just crawling with maggots. The smell was so strong. I mean, I, you could taste it. felt like my eyes were burning. Do you know what I'm talking about? Here's what's really gross. We, we didn't, of course, we poked it, right? Isn't that what you do? And, it, and the gases came out and everything, and... Um, when we got back to camp, everybody's like, oh my gosh, you guys stink. Like, what are you talking about? You guys smell really gross. You know, I'm like, really? You want to go see it? And they're like, yeah. So, but, but my point is, <laughs> my point is that stench, it's amazing. I never smelled or seen anything like that before. I don't think I even knew what a maggot was till that day. I mean, it was incredible. But, but that stench is so figurative. And you think about that, your, your talk can be that level of gross. And their tongues are filled with lies and snake venom drips. From, that's really, really bad. I mean, that imagery is incredible to think about what Paul is saying there, how evil that can be. I came across this line and I loved it. Where there is death on the inside, it will eventually show up in your words. Isn't that true? It will, it will. If there's death on the inside, it will eventually show up in your words. That unhealthy or healthy, whatever's on the inside will show up. The bitter or gracious, either one will show up. A complainer. Anybody know a complainer? It's like nothing. They're never happy. It's all, they find new things to complain about. Or an encourager. You could be either one. I came across this quote, too. I love that I had a great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. And small minds discuss people. Um, a, lo- a lot of people have attributed this to um, Eleanor Roosevelt. But, but it actually goes way, way, way back into the 1800s. This quote, it's a fascinating idea, though, if you think about great, average, or small. You get to choose, though, you know, what you do and who you are. Uh, Have you ever heard this? Uh, The average person, have you heard this before? The average person speaks about 1,600 words a day. I was curious about that, and I was curious, how do you even test that? And I've heard, too, and you've probably heard this, too, that women speak an average of 20,000 words and men an average of 7,000. Have you heard that? Of course, that's a generalization because I'm sure in my personal, in my house, that's not, it's reversed because I'm married to an introvert, so she speaks probably less than seven, and I probably speak all the ones she loses, I find them. But regardless, um, <laughs> I, I was curious, how, how would you know that? Do you ever wonder that? I mean, statistics are so, you, you can say anything with statistics, so I was curious. What they do, or what they've done, you know, a couple of universities have done these studies where they'll put like a recorder on somebody, and what it does is it records, because for some reason, and now they could do it digitally, they could record everything, but there's the studies I looked at were a little bit older, so the recorders only came on every, every 15 uh, minutes, I think it was, and recorded for just a minute, and then what they did then is did an average of the words, so that's what they did. Um, but in those averages, what they found is that that it's more about personality than it is about gender. But it did come out to similar numbers. You know, the average is about 1,600 words. The thing is, if, if you were to do just the average of 1,600 words, you play around with the math a little bit, that would be pretty much like a 64-page book a day. You speak a book a day. Or it would be like a 450-page book a week, 
What if, what if people read that book? Do you ever think about that? Every word? They got to know what your vocabulary was and they could play it back for anybody to hear. How do you speak to your spouse and your children? And what offhand comments do you make about your friends? And how do you talk different when you're under pressure or maybe being criticized? Hmm. I don't know. I, I, when I read this and think about it, I want to be careful that my words really do reflect what's really in my heart and not, not just on the top of my head. <laughs> I read this and I just laughed. Perhaps we should pray for the gift of silence. That's not actually a spiritual gift, but maybe it should be because I was reading about this linguist, which I'm not, but he, he's famous for saying he could remain silent in seven different languages. <laughs> Most of us can't do that in one. <laughs> you know, James, these, these verses we're reading, they're kind of brutal. He's saying your religion is worthless if you can't control your tongue. And I don't know about if, if this is hitting any of you in here, but what about when you're tired or under pressure? I mean, do you get a break when, when things just aren't going right? I mean, there's times where your tongue is more difficult to control, and I wonder about that. That's the first C is your communication. The second one was compassion. And, and this specific area about compassion, he says, is pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. True. True religion moves us to action. True religion, he says caring for, it's an active verb right there. <laughs> you know what he didn't say? He didn't say true religion was going to church a lot. I don't know about you, but I grew up going to church a lot. We were at church a lot. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. My parents had choir practice another night. There was usually a prayer meeting or an activity or something. I mean, we were there three or four times a, a week. It was a lot. But he didn't say that was true religion. He didn't say it was reading your Bible cover to cover, although that's good, and, and going to church a lot's good. He didn't say it was praying, praying hours and hours a day or dressing a certain way or doing your hair like this or that, right? He didn't say any of those things. He could have. He didn't say that. What he said was uh, true religion gets your hands dirty. He said true religion is seeing distress in the world and then doing something about it, actually actively uh, doing something. Orphans and widows... You know, he, he puts a clarifying phrase there, and he says, in their distress. And, and you could read it a couple ways. You could read it, in their distress, in other words, you don't need to help them unless they're distressed, or the fact that they are distressed, because they are. And I don't know how many of you qualify for that, for that term right now, but um, the fact is that in this society, the first, that first century, it was a bad time to be an orphan or a widow. Most women couldn't support themselves, in, at least not in moral ways. I mean, they couldn't do a lot of physical labor. There wasn't a lot of jobs for them that men weren't already doing. They, were, they didn't have a lot of protections from the government or society or even religion, really. They were taken advantage of, and children were looked at as a nuisance. And in fact, in Roman society, now this wouldn't be Jewish society, it'd be Roman society, most of the time, orphans, if they, weren't a certain, if they weren't age enough to be put into slavery, they would have been discarded outside the city and left to starve. Hard to imagine that, isn't it? That's one of the reasons that Christianity was so revolutionary, is that Christianity didn't do that. They did not do that. They did not abandon them. Instead, they took them on. Um, I came across this photo this week, and, and it, it really did choke me up when I saw it. And I thought it wasn't real, and I had to do some research into this photo. And uh, when I saw it, it was on, I was just looking at some black and white photos. I just love the, 
I love the starkness and the drama of black and white photos. But, but this photo caught my eye. And I think partly it caught my eye because um, my mom's family, they were, the Dust Bowl knocked them out. And they were in, a, they, my mom was uh, born in Oklahoma. And her and her family, they loaded up literally everything they had with, with another part of the family on a truck and a car and drove to California for a better life. And my mom lost her only pair of shoes on the way and didn't get another one for four months. It's hard to imagine that kind of poverty, isn't it? So when I saw this, I was really struck by this picture. And I thought, that cannot be real. Four children for sale. Let me read you. I found an article about it. Um, This devastating photograph from 1948 uh, seems unreal. Surely people can't sell their children in the United States, even in the 40s. Family members accused the mother of being paid to stage the photo, which may have been part of the story. But unfortunately, she was dead serious and did sell her children. Within two years of all the children in the picture were sold, as well as the baby she was carrying at the time. You can't see the she's pregnant, but she was. They were sold to different homes. Two of the children went to one home, and then two of them went to an, or three of them went to another. Uh, it's a story of horrible survival and heartbreak. Uh, the the national newspapers did pick the photo up. It appeared in the um, in a paper in Indiana, August fifth, nineteen forty eight. The children do look posed. And the mom's turning away from the camera because the reporter took the picture and she was ashamed. It was uh, the tragic story of Mr. and Mrs. Ray Califo. They were facing eviction from their apartment because her husband had been a jobless coal truck driver and his wife decided to sell their four children. She ended up having four more children when she got remarried later, this, this lady. And the two older girls on the top step they were reunited later, right before the one on the left died of cancer in their, in their older age. They did not, they were not reunited till these people were all in their 60s and 70s, those children. And then the boy, he, um, well, anyway, those, I, I don't want to tell you the rest of the story. It's too sad. But they all lived to adulthood. It's hard to imagine, though, isn't it? The plight of orphans. You know, Scripture has always said to do this, though. It's not, it didn't appear first in James. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless in the book of Exodus as part of the law. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows in the book of Isaiah. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan in Zechariah. It, it's part of our faith, and it has been forever and ever and ever and ever. Here's the thing, though. I think sometimes when I think of orphans and widows, I think of... Um, of course, widows, and, and I know we all know widows, and the heartbreak of losing a spouse, especially after you've lived together your whole life. And But then there's other orphans and widows that sometimes may not may appear that way. Maybe it's single moms or single kids, and I feel like we have a lot of that even here at the church and our family and your neighborhood. And sometimes it is physical orphan and physical widow, and sometimes it's emotional where there is no father figure. I remember as a young youth pastor, moms coming to me, single moms, and saying, I need you to be a father to my son. And, you know, I, I remember saying, okay. I, th- I thought I understood that. But I realized quickly I didn't understand it, that the need was way more than I could meet, and they need that desperately. We need to do what the Scripture says to do and to help them. Jesus excoriates the religious rulers of his day. He says, 
He's talking about them. He's talking about them, the religious rulers. And he says, they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious, making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. A test of true religion is how we care for those who can never repay us. Those who are among us and in our society who are hurting, we may never even recognize the depth of that. It's one of the reasons I think our ranger and our kids program are so important. Because we never know the need that's there. We just don't know. And kids need that so desperately. And the impact program. God bless those who care for widows and for single moms and work in the nursery and the children's department and backyard Bible clubs and take in foster kids and adopt kids and the disabled and orphans and the unborn crisis pregnancy centers. These are... Those, are, those things I just listed are all representative ministries we hear church support. And we support them because we recognize we can't become a, an adoption agency, but we know people who do that. You know, the sparks with what they do with foster care is something that just, it, it amazes me. The kids that they take in and all the foster parents that they support and help. And I'm, I'm so glad that we can be a part of their ministry by what we contribute. And what you contribute to the church allows us to support them. And there's times where we give you opportunities to give toward those types of ministries. And we have the box that's out in the lobby. And, and there's times where those things that are put in there are supporting those types of ministries. Or we give you opportunity to go and, and volunteer and be the hands and feet of Jesus at those types of ministries. Uh, recently, uh, Nick and Brittany were really moved about one of the ministries we support, actually. It's a restoration house of Kansas City and it involves sex trafficking and they were just overwhelmed by the ongoing modern slavery that's happening right here. I don't know if you realize that Kansas City is one of the hubs because, because we're connected so much with rail and, and uh, freeways that it's a hub for that where people are, you know, usually women and children are drawn into uh, human trafficking. I mean, even calling it human trafficking doesn't even sound, it's not even accurate enough. I mean, it's, it's literally sex slavery and it's, right around us so they're actually doing a run and you could support them i appreciate that they're doing this and they're they're actually trying to make a difference with this and i look at that kind of thing and i think it's something that we should all whether it's participating with what the woods do as far as setting up those opportunities for us to minister or not but it's more than that it's when you see somebody who needs a father figure or just someone to care about them or talk to them or take them in or a mom needs help because it's so hard to do it all by yourself and to be mom and dad to all the kids. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of work. I know as a kid growing up in the Navy, uh, my mom did a ministry to the service wives because, you know, and, and I know it's a little different now, but back then, you know, guys would be gone for nine months. It's a long time. You know, and I can't tell you how many times we were taking food to houses and, and arranging some dad who wasn't gone to go repair a faucet or whatever. I mean, that is minute, that is real true religion right there so we have communication we have compassion and then we have character that last line he says there to keep oneself uh, one of the versions says unstained by the world i like that one i like that because i've stained a lot of things in my life i don't know about you but oh my mom she she was a gracious woman uh anybody else have patches on their pants she she repaired a lot of clothes because it just that's just who i was I remember one time I opened the fridge too quick. Has anybody ever done this? And one of those Louisiana hot sauces fly, flew out, and it hit the ground. Hit the ground, and uh, there was a stain on the kitchen floor, probably for ten years. You know what I'm talking about? 
a stain that just wouldn't come out. One time, we had a mulberry tree in the backyard in one of our houses we lived in, and some friends were over, and I don't know how this got started. I'm sure it wasn't me, but we started throwing mulberries at each other. Has anybody ever done this? What we didn't realize was happening is, not only were our clothes permanently stained, but our skin was stained. Have you ever seen that? I mean, we were purple. We were all purple as we came in the house. My mom's like, don't come in here. Don't touch anything. Go back outside. And they're trying to hose us off, and it's not coming off. And she's all upset and embarrassed because the kids were visiting. They, weren't, they didn't live with us, <laughs> so they had to go home like that. And uh, anyway, buddy. But we live in a dirty world, don't we? And it's easy to be stained by the world. I know that sounds weird, but it's easy to be stained. Not, not stained by stupid things like hot sauce and mulberry trees, but stained by moral compromise and things that we allow into our, into our life that changes us and stains us. We're, Jesus said to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not talking about separating ourselves from the world to the, to the point where we don't have any influence, but the fact is there's so many things that, that wash over us all the time, and it's so important that we as Christians are diligent not to be stained to make wise choices, to be discerning, to know your limitations. You know, a question you might ask is, how much, how much of the world and how much, how much of the stain of the world can you be involved in and not be stained? I don't know how many times people have asked, well, how far can I go? Like young people, they might ask, how far can I go on a date and not be sinful? You ever answer that question or ask it? <laughs> My wife, she likes this example. She says, well, what if we made some brownies and I only put x lax in a couple of them? I want us to think about this for a minute. Would you just shut your eyes and think about this? I know that everyone in here, when we, we talk and joke about the, the tongue, you guys probably all at one level or another, you realize there's things you could change. And as we are talking about compassion, um, you know that there's people you could help. But when we talk about this part, about the character, you know, that's, that's the crux of it all. You know, where is your character? <clears throat> you think about Jesus, that he walked... He, he, the, the king who left heaven to walk on this earth that he created. And he wasn't stained by it. It can be done. You can do it. We just need to be more like Jesus. Think about this for a minute. I, I pulled this from something. I, I thought it would fit here. It says he left behind the purity of heaven to rescue us from the impurity of this world. He walked among us, lived with us, talked with us, ate with us, laughed with us, and wept with us. He rubbed shoulders with gluttons and drunkards, but... He wasn't a glutton or a drunkard. He knew the Pharisees and called them hypocrites, but he never became one of them. He was the son of God. And because of that, he could lift the fallen, but he himself did not fall. With your heads bowed for just a moment, I just, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of do some introspection. And David, if you could put some music on. And the fact is, I, I know that all of us probably have areas of our life where we might turn over to him and say, God, is there some area where I'm being where I am, where what I say, what comes out of my mouth makes it look like I don't have true religion. I do not want to be like that. If that's your prayer tonight, just tell him so. If for you, maybe this whole idea of compassion and, you know, maybe, maybe you haven't volunteered yet with one of the things that, um, one of the opportunities that the Woods have put together and maybe you, you realize I need to give a little bit more to those who can't give back to me and who desperately need us to help. Maybe you make a commitment to do something like that different than what you've done in the past. 
Maybe for you, as we were just talking briefly about moral compromise, and you realize that you've walked a little too close, and, and maybe even like that silly example of me and that sheep, you end up smelling like the world. You're stained by it, and the influence of that has made you not as pure as you know you need to be. And the beauty of it all is we serve a God who knows that about us, and he loves us so intensely, and he wants us to live free. And he wants to give us that freedom and he would give it to you in a moment if you just ask and tell him you're sorry and what you want to live closer. Let me just pray for us. Father, I ask that in the name of Jesus, you would help us to do all of these three things that James mentions. That our communication would be something that you would be proud of. That at any moment, you could be standing there and be proud of us, your child. I pray, Father, for our compassion that those who are around us who are so deeply in need, that you would help us to do the right thing, to notice the need and to meet the need. And Father, finally, for our character, God, that is you would help, help us in every way to live as close to you as possible. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're welcome to pray. You can stay here as long as you like. But you're also dismissed to go if you want to. God bless you tonight.